Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the COSI Southern New Hampshire University webinar on Constitution Day 2017. I'm James Fennessy, the Associate Dean of Faculty for History. Joining me today is Patrick Calloway. He's a PhD candidate in Canadian American History at the University of Maine. His dissertation focuses on the persistence and expansion of the colonial era grain trade between the U.S. and the British Empire during the long revolutionary era. Of particular interest to him is the divide between American economic and political interests during this time. Negotiations on how to reconcile these conflicts resulted in a dramatically strengthened executive branch influence over the American economy during the Jeffersonian period, which eventually led to embargo and to war. His master's thesis was on the First Amendment Non-Establishment Clause, where he examined the origins and changing meanings of the clause throughout the late 18th and early 19th century in American politics. Particularly, his research focuses on how fears of the irreligious nature of the French Revolution changed social attitudes towards how religion intersected with the political community, as well as how fear of French inspired, influenced social disorder, strengthened the political divide between Federalist and Democratic Republicans during the 1790s. So for our presentation, Patrick will begin with an introduction to the Constitution and will consider how various debates regarding ratification and federal powers impacted our nation. Patrick, thank you very much and welcome. Welcome to Constitution Day 2017. What we'll be doing today is taking a look at the Constitution, how this document came to be, and some of the debates that the founders were having at the time of the document's adoption and some of the responses to it as well. Certainly constitutional history doesn't stop in 1815 when our final document is generated, but you will see a lot of very familiar themes to us as we look at the Society of 2017. So questions over federal powers compared to state powers or questions over the power of the executive. Certain things that we are still dealing with today are questions that the founders anticipated, but in many cases did not solve because they did not have the answers themselves. So the first thing to remember and to point out about the Constitution is how unique of a document that it is in 1787. The idea of a written Constitution is a relatively new concept at this time. If we look at the other models of state governance, for example, France or of England, we see a society and a system of government that has its roots stretching back for hundreds and in some cases a thousand years. Most of the laws were not written down, but rather the government was established by and changed very slowly through the weight of custom and precedent. To use the example of the French monarchy, for example, we can draw a direct line between the government of Louis XVI and XVII of the 1700s all the way back to Clovis and the Merovingian dynasties back in the 500s. So this is a very long pattern of history that we see, and change in France towards an absolute monarchy took almost literally 1,200 years. For the English-minded, there is also a similar type of lineage to it, stretching back to Alfred in the, six, or in the 800s. The negotiations between Crown and Parliament, things like the Magna Carta and those things that we are more familiar with in American political philosophy, are also the products of compromises that are taken over decades and of centuries, but still, with the exception of a few standout documents like the Magna Carta, are not actually written down anywhere. Rather, it was weight of customs and agreements over the centuries. 
So as we look at this document, for the time, it is a very unique and very powerful document as it sets down the ruling principles for the entire society. The separation of powers, with the legitimacy, and with the means of changing the system within itself. So as we take a look at the world of the 1780s, the Constitution in itself is both cause and effect. There are a number of causes that we see in the 1780s that lead to a more powerful and a stronger central union under the Constitution. Coming out of the Revolutionary War, the national government, the Continental Congress, was a national government in name only. It existed, but that was about the extent of its powers. Chief among the powers that it did not have was the power to tax. So the Constitutional, or the the Congress prior to the Constitution did not have the authority to tax. So without money, there are a number of functions that it could not fulfill, whether that be negotiations with foreign powers on any effective level, to protect trade, to back up currency with tax revenues, to establish an army or a navy, to protect settlers from Native Americans or from depredations from pirates, uh, for example, of North Africa, there are a number of things that the government could not accomplish. The most noticeable and the most famous internal problem was Shays' Rebellion in 1786. Now, Shays' Rebellion was led by Daniel Shays and a handful of others who were Continental Army veterans. Disgusted by what had happened after the revolution in terms of taxes and in terms of conditions for veterans as well as the common people, there was a rebellion or a protest, depending on your perspective, that really threatened the stability of the Massachusetts government. Courthouses could not function, property could not change hands, the practice of the seizure of property for non-payment of taxes was brought to a halt through mob violence. The national government could do nothing to restore order. There was no army and no money to, get, to pay for one. The state government was also underfunded. Very little money to pay for an army to restore order. So what happens is that we have almost a private counter mob that gathers together under the auspices of the Massachusetts state government and suppresses Shea's rebellion. Now, Shays Rebellion is the revolt that happens in the countryside. There are other places that have a similar set of dynamics where economic conditions had actually gotten worse after the revolution. And rather than blaming one tyrant in England, a lot of people were starting to look at enemies closer to hand, particularly those that had a different financial interest. In order to secure property, in order to secure public order, a stronger structure was absolutely needed. So as we get to 1787, there are a couple more things to bear in mind. First, remember that the Continental Congress as a national government still does exist. Also remember that the delegates that gathered together for this constitutional convention are not operating under the auspices of Congress nor are they operating under the auspices of their state governments. Rather, this is a collection of individuals of varying prestige, of varying wealth to a certain degree, who are gathering together to try to modify 
the Articles of Confederation, which were the governing documents under the Continental Congress, into something that was a little bit more effective, not only for internal order, but for external purposes as well. On the first day of the convention, they discover that as they are negotiation, um, no, negotiating amongst themselves, that the Articles of Confederation, as currently described, cannot survive. One of the rules under the Continental Congress and the Articles of Confederation was that all votes on all things must be unanimous between the 13 states. In the Constitutional Convention, one state was not even represented. Therefore, unanimity was absolutely impossible by definition. As they start to negotiate amongst themselves and to really discuss what they saw as the ills in society and the ills for the nation and the potential problems if these ills were not addressed, they start to formulate a different document, that which will become the Constitution. So what did the Constitution actually say? As we see within the Hudson reading, debates over what the Constitution actually said, actually meant, and how it should be applied have been one of the most enduring debates in American history. If we think of our society in 2017, we are still trying to figure out what it means. The current debates over the Constitution are reflected at this time, and they are also reflected through time as society molds and changes, as new technologies are introduced. There are certain problems that come up that perhaps have a parallel, but are not exactly seen within the document itself. So as we look through the different schools of thought that go with this, uh, the Hudson reading provides a very abbreviated historiography of the document itself and how it has been interpreted in the various schools since that time. So taking a look at the document itself, let's take a look at what the Constitution actually says. Now this is a very familiar structure that we are used to, the three branches of government and the various powers that are delegated to them. It is significant that the legislature and the legislative branch come first. Fear of tyranny, fear of another George III was counterbalanced by fear of the mob. This is why, for example, we have the Great Compromise over the separation between the Senate and the House of Representatives and how those delegates to Congress are apportioned, some by state, some by population. It is also why we have offset elections. The House of Representatives will turn over at one time, but the Senate has a six-year term. That is in part to help curb any enthusiasm, as they would have termed it, that could lead in a potentially destructive direction. So they are trying to thread a very fine needle here. As we look through the powers granted to the Congress, there are several powers that are significant to us today, particularly as we look at Section 8. The power of the purse is put firmly in the hands of Congress. The power to tax, the power to set tax rates, the powers of expenditure, are all placed under the authority of Congress as a way of curtailing some of the abuses that they saw in, within the British system to where more fiscal authority was placed in the hands of the monarchy. There are powers delegated to the Congress that were denied to them under the Articles of Confederation, chiefly to regulate commerce, 
also to establish um, coin money, to tax, to establish post offices, and other things that were associated with the Congress at this time as a means of a hedge against both the mob, so-called, and the imperial presidency, as they would have worried about it. There's one particular element of expenditure that is significant for them, and that is control of expenditures over the military. In English tradition, the military, particularly the army, was associated with the monarchy. This is a little bit less the case with the navy, but particularly the army was associated with royal control and with abuses of royal power. Therefore, part of the powers claimed by Congress was control over those expenditures, because an army without money ceases to function. So that becomes a very significant point that is made at this time. There's also the, the inclusion in Section 8 of what's called now the Elastic Clause, or the Necessary and Proper Clause. This is part of the flexibility within the document that has made the Constitution such an enduring document in that it has a built-in clause that will allow it to at least shape and shift meaning over the course of time depending on the needs and the circumstances of the day. So moving on to the second section, we see that there is the presidency. Now we have moved away from the great man and the great individual school of history for quite some time now, but this is a place where the great man theory is actually applicable. George Washington, by general consensus, was going to be the first president of the United States. As the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, as a veteran, as a legislator, as somebody who had a truly national reputation, it was very clear that power of the presidency was going to be vested in him. Now, Washington as an executive figure is not exactly new. Congress had granted him extraordinary powers in certain uh, parts of the Revolutionary War, which he had used very effectively and had used sparingly. So there is a lot of trust and confidence that is placed into him as the prospective, if not probable, president under the Constitution. So some of the powers that are given to the president are more in line with the English monarch, especially as critics of the Constitution learn more about its content. There are certain powers that are granted, particularly to be commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy and of the militia, but there is a built-in limitation, and that is, is when they are in actual service. So this is a distinction that they are drawing between the king and the prospective president. There are also numerous clauses within the Constitution and within the description of the executive branch that's subject to it to a check and a balance, particularly with the Senate. The Senate was seen in many ways as the center of power under this new Constitution. It is the advice and consent of the Senate, for example, for cabinet appointments or for ambassador appointments, or for foreign treaties. That is very intentional. It is, again, a balance within the system itself between a fears of a monarchy 
and potential fears of too much popular control. So as we go through the ratification debates, the executive becomes one of the most hotly contested parts of the document because there are a lot of apprehensions and with reason over what exactly this office potentially could become in the course of time. The third branch is the judiciary. In the context of the 1780s and 1790s, this is actually the least developed branch of the entire federal government. Uh, if we look forward to 1794, for example, the Chief Justice, a guy by the name of John Jay, is actually sent by Washington to England to negotiate a commercial treaty with the British. Uh, compare that to 2017 and President Trump sending John Roberts on a negotiating trip would be all but unheard of and would be considered scandalous. Back then, the courts were much less prominent in American society, therefore this was something that could be put forward. Now the Constitution itself, it is important to remember that these are closed meetings. There are many things that we do not know about the negotiations that occurred behind those closed doors, but they are unknown to the people at the time as well. So the Constitution comes forth out of Constitution Hall in Philadelphia as a completed document. And it is given to the people to read, but not to vote on. The Constitution has yet to be subject to a popular vote. Rather, the procedure set forward to ratify the document is that a series of commissions and conventions in each of the individual states would be called for the purposes of voting the Constitution either up or down, yes or no vote, without amendments. Remember that the only people who actually know what is in the contents of the document are those that negotiated and put it together. By the time we get to the end of the convention in September, there are only 39 people who actually sign it. Four people who are in, involved in the convention refused to sign it. So net out of the entire United States, we have under 40 men who know what the document actually says and who present it to the state conventions as a take it or leave it proposition. So this starts a great deal of debate. We see these very prominently and most famously in the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist Papers. Part of the constitutional ratification process was that this was in part a sales job. Why should the public, why should the delegates to these constitutional conventions vote for the Constitution when they had no voice and no hand in drafting the document? In a very concerted effort to try to publicize and to advocate for this new document, we see the growth of the newspaper as a means of shaping public opinion and of advertising the virtues and the logic behind the document. Most famously, these are the Federalist Papers. It is not known until later that Hamilton, Jay, and Madison are the authors of these documents. Uh, that is not known in some cases until years later, but they set forward a number of arguments on why this Constitution is a viable, feasible, and necessary alternative to the Articles of Confederation and that the Convention should vote for them. One of the most famous of these letters is the Federalist Letter 10. Uh, there is a total 
of 70 of these documents that come to pass that are preserved, but Federalist 10 is the most famous, as this is the writing on the idea of faction. The founders are very keen historians. They are deeply steeped into the history of Rome and of Greece, and of what befell the republics of Roman Greece. And one of the problems, particularly in the Greek city-states, was the problem of faction. Different economic interests, different cultural groups, different social groups would combine together and therefore overthrow the government of the whole. So a tyranny of the minority, so to speak. Madison in Federalist 10 actually argues that this is a great thing. The classical wisdom that decrees that there is one common public interest and one common public good is not correct to him. It is actually destructive to his eyes because the cure for trying to create that perfect agreement was actually worse than the disease of faction. Faction itself actually will preserve liberty because with so many disagreeing voices in the audience, it would be required to do anything that there would be compromise. It would be required that different factions would work together and would have a natural interest in checking one another and keeping them from exerting too much influence over society. So this is conventional wisdom of the 1780s and the 1790s turned on its head but it is nonetheless very persuasive as it allows people to take a look through the 13 different states and fear the Constitution a little bit less because it was not designed, or at least it was not advertised to design, that there would be one unanimous opinion throughout the country, but rather that each individual states, that individual economic interests, that individual identities would actually be served by the Constitution. It was not overarching and it was not oppressive. It was not the English system that saw that idea of a one common public interest, but rather it would allow for the liberty of the people and of the states and of various interest groups to continue on in a certain way unaffected but at least unencumbered by this new government system. So this is a powerful selling point, which does greet with a great deal of public approval. The powers of the presidency were a much tougher sell. Memories of George III and of the abuses under the British system, as they were remembered and perhaps embellished over the course of time, were just part of the revolutionary heritage that forms the background for the constitutional document. In addressing these questions in Federalist 69 and 70, Hamilton's trying to create a very interesting argument that in a certain way actually contradicts itself. In Federalist 69, we see a lengthy expose on the differences between the president and the king. Things such as the election versus hereditary monarchy, the difference between being commander-in-chief of the military services at all times versus that of only being commander-in-chief when they are actually in service. So these are big things that are significant and significant uh, problems that they saw. The next letter, Federalist 70, argues almost the exact opposite. One of the sort of catchphrases of the time was the idea of energy or of vigor. 
on one hand, they are trying Hamilton and the Federalists are trying to avoid the problems of having too strong of a central government, but at the same time, a stronger central structure is absolutely needed if other rebellions such as Shays' rebellions could be prevented or would need to be dealt with after they had broken out. So this idea of energy becomes a talking point that an a government that did not have sufficient vigor to be a terror to evildoers would cease to be a government at all. Now this is put into the hands of the president. The idea of a vigorous executive as being necessary because it would help prevent the ills that had befallen the United States under the Articles of Confederation. So this is not a full centralization, but rather the executive as a guarantor of the law and as a guarantor of security was a necessary part of the Constitution. It was also required for accountability. Reaching back to the heritage of Rome again, there is a great deal of fear over creating a government led by councils. Uh, thinking back to the very famous case of Caesar and the three councils back uh, during the fall of the empire, this is also something they're trying to avoid. So accountability requires a single hand to be in charge. There are certain limitations, certainly, to this. As we see back in Federalist 69, particularly with the Senate and some of the constitutional checks on executive power, but an executive, as they are trying to propose, is not something that needs to be inherently feared. It was rather a necessary and required part of a successful government. The Anti-Federalists are much less organized. The Federalists have the advantage of being a national convention that came together and who have a more or less set script that they are trying to propose and set forward. The Anti-Federalists do not have that advantage. Certainly there are people who see need for revising the Articles of Confederation and who perhaps are not necessarily opposed to the Constitution, but rather have some very serious questions about it. This is particularly true over the question of the executive and over the nature of the powers granted to the federal government. One of the more famous of these anti-federalist papers or anti-federalist tracts is by John Tyler, who was a delegate at the Virginia Convention. He takes a little bit more of a structural look at it, and his complaint was that this Constitution isn't a law, necessarily, but it is rather the structure by which law would be passed. Without more security on what the limitations on this would be, whether for the protection of individuals or for the protection of the powers of the state, this really created a too strong of a federal government, too strong, too much power placed in too few of a hands that would be too distant away from the states and from the popular um, press and from the people that it would end up costing people liberty. So we see the ideas are very similar. The Federalists and the Anti-Federalists are both talking about liberty but the difference is that for the Federalists, that the liberty required a deeper structure, whereas the Anti-Federalists saw liberty as something that could only be constrained by structure. 
Although there was agreement that complete anarchy was not desirable for any number of reasons, this is a real sticking point. As we look at the votes for the ratifying conventions, there are enough people who raise concerns that there is the seen the need for a Bill of Rights. This is somewhat similar, at least in historical origin, to something like the Magna Carta. It is a part of the considered part of the Constitution, but in a way it is a response to the criticisms of the Constitution. So it is separate, but still part of at the same time. The Ten Amendments that we are familiar with in the Bill of Rights, again, are much more controversial and contested to this day, much more so than the structure of the Constitution. So think of contemporary debates surrounding the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, you know, the Fifth Amendment, and search and seizure, and all of the various different social debates that we have seem to route through the Bill of Rights. In the context of 1788 and 1789, this was an agreed-upon compromise that delegates who perhaps were a little bit wary of a constitution without a Bill of Rights explicitly added to it would support the document under the promise that it would be added later. So the first Congress under the Constitution, this is really their primary job, is to try to negotiate amongst themselves what the constitutional amendments would look like, what the Bill of Rights would be, how they would be worded. But within this debate, we see a number of very interesting elements. If we take a look, for example, at the First Amendment, uh, the idea of the non-establishment clause for a church and for religion is very much in the news today, uh, a, quite a different context than they would have understood in 1790 but nonetheless, the same basic theory and function. Part of the enduring issue, or part of the enduring value of the Constitution is that whatever our contemporary debates are, they center on the Constitution and the interpretation of it and of its amendments. The downside and the cost to this is that a number of debates that we have in 2017 just are not reflected in what they would have understood in 1790. Taking a look at the uh, non-establishment clause, for example, we're used to the great debates these days, whether it's the Hobby Lobby case, whether it's the Colorado Cake case, we can think of any number of different significant arguments that center on non-establishment that are part of our political discourse today. To a degree, we impose this importance on the past. For the founders, they would not have understood this line of argument that we have today. Their concern over an established church was at least driven by the fear that tax dollars would be used in order to support religion. It was not necessarily to protect the church, but rather to protect the government from the church. As we're very familiar with the First Amendment, the says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, it must be remembered that the various states did have an established religion. Some of them had broken away from the established churches, particularly those that had the Anglican church as their state church, 
but there were many states, particularly in New England, that had a church establishment. Part of this is a debate of powers between the federal and the state governments. The fact that the states could not establish a state, a state religion was not actually established in law until the 1940s. That very interesting analogy from Thomas Jefferson about a wall of separation between church and state is not part of the Constitution. It is not part of the Bill of Rights. It is actually from a letter written by him to a group of people known as the Danbury Baptists in 1802. The Baptists in Connecticut were a religious minority group. It was a majority Congregationalist uh, state, and there was a conflict between the Baptists and the Congregationalists uh, in Connecticut over the use of tax monies to support you know, the public displays of religion, particularly related to the education and to the creation and enforcement of morals. So there's a context to that. If we look at the debates within Congress itself over this, we see a number of interesting things. Out of the subcommittee, a total of five gentlemen who are looking at this, we have a variety of opinions over what this prohibition on uh, the established religion at the national level should look like. And the range of opinions ranges from Madison, who wishes to have the more or less the language we see with Congress and the federal government being prohibited from doing that, to others who say, well, no doctrine should be established by law, that the document and that part of the amendment is completely unnecessary because it was not under Congress's jurisdiction to begin with, to those that have some doubt about the propriety of the whole question. So this is not really a driving desire of Congress to have a non-establishment clause. This is rather something that had a variety of opinions, not all of which saw it as significant. So this is, to a certain degree, a debate that we have imposed on the past based on our contemporary concern. Nonetheless, it is telling that the Court of Appeal for this goes back to the Constitution and the meaning of it. As we look through the rest of the amendments, we see a number of amendments that directly address the fears that people had that this new federal government was becoming too much like the English government. For example, the quarterings of soldiers in Amendment 3. This was a British practice that under the law, soldiers could be quartered in people's homes. So memories of this reach very deep and very darkly in certain parts of the country, particularly places like Boston, who had a very strong recollection of the difficulties of having soldiers quartered in individual homes. So trials by juries, bail, those sorts of rights and liberties that we are uh, familiar with, these are things that have very particular abuses in mind that this is the guarantee that these types of things will not happen again. One of the least controversial of the time, but one of the amendments that has become more controversial over the course of time, is Amendment 10. That the rights of the states ha have all rights that are not expressly delegated to the federal government under the Constitution. This amendment has been used in any number of ways, particularly associated with the institution of slavery in the Civil War, but we do see elements of it today. 
not controversial at the time, very controversial now. And it forms a very interesting balance between what we saw with the First Amendment and how it has become controversial, and how back then it was not. As we move forward into the 1790s, as expected, George Washington is elected president. The constitutional structure at least seems to be functioning. There is a Congress. There is at least the start of a judiciary. There is a start of a tax collection system. Those things that are established by the Constitution are, however, in their infancy. Many of the problems associated with Shays' Rebellion, the economic dislocation, have not been rectified, particularly along the frontiers. In the early 1790s, as part of the power to tax, the federal government starts to look around for things that they could tax for revenue. One of the things that they hit on pretty quickly is to put a tax on whiskey distillation. Now there are certain problems with this. Uh, whiskey is distilled in frontier areas, much more so than in more settled communities. On the frontier, whiskey is actually a form of currency and a store of value. It is the only way to preserve the crop in most cases. In western Pennsylvania, many farmers, when this tax come out, protest vehemently. Proportionally, they are underrepresented in Congress, so they did not have an adequate vote to their mind. They had no other way of moving their product because there were no set roads. The road system was inadequate to move corn rather than whiskey. Trade connections through the Ohio and through the Mississippi Valleys was not established. Native Americans and conflict in the Ohio Territory was still very much a front-burner issue. In short, they are seeing money going out in an unfair way, somewhat similar to what we see with Shays. This situation remains in pretty much stasis until about 1794, when a tax collector shows up and is violently set upon by the mob. President Washington, in this idea of a vigorous executive enforcing the law and being required to enforce the law in order to retain security and retain structure in society, decides that things have gone far enough that things are so far out of hand that an armed response is required. Therefore, in the late summer and early fall of 1794, Washington himself leads an army of 12,000 militia drawn from various states to western Pennsylvania to put down a rebellion. The problem, as Thomas Jefferson saw it, uh, he was the Secretary of State at the time, was that there was no such rebellion, but an army showing up might create one. The uprising, or protests, depending on your perspective, in western Pennsylvania collapse almost immediately. There is no bloodshed, with the exception of one soldier who was killed while the barn he was staying in caught on fire. This is very significant in a couple of ways. First, we see the start of a very clear division in political parties. The factions that Madison spoke of in Federalist 10 and political party, as we see them start to develop in the 1790s, is not quite the same thing. This is the origin of the two-party American state, which we are still working with to this day. The idea of a multitude of factions brought security for Madison. We are starting to see the division into two factions. That's the political fallout. 
But if we think a little bit more structurally, this was the proof of the Constitution, that a vigorous executive backed by the expenditures of Congress on military force, backed by the state militias, was able to restore order in western Pennsylvania in a way that Shays' rebellion could not be. So this was proof of the Constitution, that order and structure that was required was actually here and present. For people like Tyler, who had warned about this exact problem, and for people like Madison and Jefferson, who are increasingly starting to see the problems with this application of the constitutional authority, this starts to build up into a great deal of frustration. As we move forward to 1798, there are a series of laws passed called the Alien and Sedition Act, relating to criticism of the presidential administration, uh, President John Adams, as well as relating to immigration issues. This was the first real test of Amendment 10, and we see this in the form of the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions. It is not known until decades later that Madison and Jefferson were the authors of those documents. Uh, that's not really well known until the 1820s and 30s, but this was the test between state and federal authority. Surrounding this was the idea of nullification, that Amendment 10, if appropriately applied, provided a check and a balance by the several states on the federal government that would allow the states to nullify federal laws that were not in accordance with the Constitution. This is never really tried in court at this time. The ultimate form of nullification, looking forward to South Carolina in 1832 and later to 1860 and 1861, lay far into the future, but it is the same doctrine. This is part of the controversy that starts to show up around Amendment 10. Did the states have the right to do that? Now, the election of 1800 intervenes. Jefferson becomes president. The Alien and Sedition Acts had an expiration on them, and they were allowed to expire peacefully. But the constitutional question over whether or not the federal government could be checked by the several states in that way remains a cloud over the document. As we move forward and to our last document, the findings of the Hartford Convention and of the Hartford Revolutions, or the Resolutions, we see a very interesting twist of history here. Usually we associate the demand for major constitutional revisions in the 1800s with the South, whether that be in terms of protections for slavery or through that expression of Amendment 10 and of separation. This is not the case, however. As Jefferson and later Madison become president from 1800 to 1816, many of their policies were universally deplored by particularly New England. So things like trade regulations surrounding the Embargo Acts, for example, created a great deal of controversy as well as the potential for poverty because of an overstrong federal government. Within these 15 to 20 years after the Constitution, we see an almost total flip between Democratic Republicans or Jeffersonian Republicans who feared a strong central government because of the liberties of the people and the Federalists, who in the 1790s were more pro-central government, they have switched sides by the time we get to the 18-teens. 
War with Great Britain breaks out in 1812, and it does not go well, to say the very least. There is a lot of distress in the land, particularly related to the war and to the taxes caused by the war, along with the destruction of foreign trade, according to the war. Looking at who voted for the revolution, this, or for the War of 1812, this was a very clear sectional divide. New England, primarily Federalist, opposed it. The South and the West, primarily Democratic-Republican, voted for it. In New England, there are very loud complaints about the destructive capacity of the war and how it was voted on party lines and on sectional lines that war would be entered into. As we get to the end of 1814 and a season of discontent, the White House, for example, had been burned earlier that fall, and the war effort was not going well and was getting worse, delegates from the New England states met together and proposed several amendments to the Constitution, which would serve to check the powers of the federal government. For example, controls over taxation and how to apportion them amongst the states, how to admit new states into the Union, and prohibitions on the power of Congress and of the President to prohibit commerce, except for during times of war, and perhaps, and most interesting, that the same person should not be elected president for twice, or that a president could not be from the same state as his predecessor. Now these proposed amendments are all but forgotten these days. Uh, the Hartford Convention collapses almost immediately because at the end of the war, there is no 1815 campaign in order to keep the distress going, but it is nonetheless a very interesting commentary on how different factions and different sections within the country have interpreted the document in light of the changing conditions. So as we come to a close here, keep in mind that some of these debates continue on. 1815 is a bit of an arbitrary closing point for this. However, it does correlate a little bit with the question of what did the founders create with the Constitution. As we move forward into the 1820s and 1830s, we start to get an entirely different cast and crew of people who see the Constitution as the norm. Whether it needed to be amended, there is some sentiment for that, but whether it should be replaced is not really on the docket again, at least until the Civil War. The Civil War is uh, primarily over slavery, which the Constitution only touches on in passing and in very oblique fashion. But it does touch on, nonetheless, some of the same issues of federal and state authority. This is another generation of people, however. And what the Founders had created is much more part of our consciousness, more so than what comes after it, at least until we start to get into the Reconstruction Amendments. So, as we come to a close here, this has been enjoyable for me. A quick and cursory view over the Founders and the Constitution. It is perhaps remarkable that even 200 plus years later, that we still reference this document, not only as an example to others and to other nations, but rather as an enduring framework 
of what the United States government is supposed to be and what the rights, freedoms, and responsibilities of the American citizen are supposed to be. It is significant that the form of government uh, founded by the Constitution, the republic that it is created by, that is created by it, avoided many of the traps that the founders were afraid of in terms of faction and disunion, uh, avoided the trap of tyranny, and has provided a more or less stable framework for governing the nation since that time. Thank you, and I hope that you have an enjoyable rest of your day, and that you take a look at some of these founding documents, as they are very interesting and have so much to say about our present day. So thank you.